everybody. Jordan Tenenbaum here, host of Saligo's Technology Leadership Podcast. We have Roger Dietz, the Vice President of Engineering at Blueprint, as our guest today. As always, Mark Simon, the Vice President of Strategy at Saligo, is my co-host. Roger, welcome Hello. to Saligo's Podcast. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Lovely to, uh, lovely to be here. Yeah, man. Absolutely. I figured we could uh, start out with something that um, I'm sure you've talked a little bit about before, but our listeners are keen to hear about. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, journey to becoming a vice president of engineering? How'd you get to where you are and and what do you do? Yeah, sure. So I've spent my entire career in software. Um, I, I graduated from, from IU's business school, um, but my first job was, was in tech support, uh, manning the phones um, at, a, at a software company called Install Shield, if, if you remember the, the Install Shield wizard from, from back in the day. Um, and then uh, I ended up becoming a developer at, at that company. Um, and so I, I spent the first, you know, definitely third, maybe half of my career as a day-to-day -day engineer, um, you know, just writing code. And um, I always kind of tended to be a little bit more on the front end side, you know, kind of user interface design, kind of bridging the gap between, um, you know, the engineering efforts and, and like the product design efforts. Um, and then kind of, you know, kind of midway through um, my career, I, I uh, had a few more kind of architecture level roles. So um, I worked at a company that was uh, responsible for a product that did like real time disaster recovery replication, you know, and so that was kind of my first foray into you know, managing systems at kind of at a higher level. I still wrote code in that role. Um, but was a little bit more of an architect and, and kind of that's where I kind of started to get the the itch to, to you know, be in a little bit more of an active uh, leadership role. Um, and then after that job, um, I joined Angie's List, you know, which is a nationwide, you know, B2C brand. Um, and then uh, I joined that company as an architect and, and over time um, moved into kind of my first like proper management role um, there. And then it kind of, you know, just I kind of kind of found my calling and, you know, I kind of felt like it was, it was a good fit for me in terms of, in terms of the things that I thought I was good at and, and the things I thought were, you know, were valuable to the company. And um, so I, I kind of, you know, um, continued with the management track there and ended up being, you know, the VP of engineering over there. And then the last handful of roles that I've had have all been in, in various, you know, um, director, VP, you know, engineering leadership um, kind of roles. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome, man. That's very cool to hear. And congrats on working all the way up to a vice president role. That's always exciting. And with that uh, role comes a lot of responsibility. Um, hey, uh, uh, Jordan, I'd love to ask Roger a question here. Uh, Roger, on that, I've you know I've known a lot of pe I've known a lot of engineers in in my career that have aspired to to become technology leaders. Uh, you know and typically similar progression where they move into management. But I've also seen a lot kind of venture into there. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work out very well. Sure. And I'm curious to hear because it was successful for you. What was? What do you think was the key to being a, a to successfully navigating that transition? Really, yeah. for someone that's that, that's day to day, hands on, subject matter expert mm -hmm. to to kind of switching over. Yeah, sure. So the way I kind of think about it is that, like, just like in software, there's different like levels of abstraction of the the business mm -hmm. the organization yep. etc you know and so i think it really just depends on how comfortable you are with um navigating a new level of abstraction you know um because when you move into a management role you know especially an engineering management role 
you know, your job is now to achieve results through others. Your job is not to do it all yourself, you know, um, and, and your job is also to bridge the gap between, you know, what the business is trying to do or what the organization is trying to do and like what, you know, the, the folks that are on your team, you know, can can provide. And so, you know, um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a with a great long detailed career in being an individual contributor being a very highly technical person um and you know writing code day in and day out i mean that, that's a very rewarding career path as well um but it, it if you you know want to um, be successful in management it requires kind of setting some of those details aside and then focusing on other details which are going to be more related to you know how are the people on my team doing is the thing that we're delivering actually valuable to the business you know regardless of like what the technology is behind it or regardless of you know how elegant it is you know and so if you're comfortable and if, and if you're motivated by by those challenges of like you know organizing other people to do stuff that you know is valuable elsewhere um like you know it can it can be successful um but again there, there's nothing wrong if, if you really love tech and you really love to you know yeah. um being day in day out with with um you know the latest technology development you know that there's also obviously <laughs> those of us that are in management need <laughs> need the folks that that really care deeply about that to, to do their jobs really well too you know so exactly that's great that's great perspective thank you so with that type of responsibility you're managing a lot of people you're building a lot of um interesting well i guess and a very interesting product or platform at blueprint for those listening, could you tell us a little bit about what Blueprint does and what problems uh, you solve on behalf of your customers? Yeah, sure. So, so we build tools, digital tools for mental health providers. Um, and you know, there's there's really no more important work I think that's being done in our society right now than than what mental health providers are are doing. Um, and they haven't really benefited from just a lot of really great tools, you know, and they're already overworked and they've already got tremendous challenges in their, in their jobs and, and they deserve great tools. And so, you know, that's what our blueprint, the, you know, the mission of blueprint is to make sure that, you know, as many people as possible get access to high quality mental health care. And we believe the way to do that is to, is to build great tools for mental health providers so they can, they can do their job even better. Um, <clears throat> That's awesome. That's awesome. And so it makes me think I have a, a couple of friends who are social workers and uh, they deal primarily with mental health and they are incredibly ill-equipped and um, not only in terms of like training and things like that, but also software and like lack of a platform to organize and streamline and just get everything under control that doesn't actually have to do with dealing with people. And so from your perspective, what's, you know, maybe it is training, maybe it is technology, but what is the biggest challenges working in mental health in 2023 about to be 2024? Um, yeah, I'm curious yeah. your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So a lot of the pain that, that, you know, our customers face on a daily basis is, is clinician burnout and not enough hours in the day to do their job well, you know? And so that's where one suite of tools that we have is, is all about um, saving them time. So, so leaning into, um, AI assisted technologies to help them, um, you know, do documentation and do some of the, the case management stuff in an automated way that just, you know, hopefully gives them back hours in their day um, that, 
can either be used for, you know, for their, their core line of work and helping people or can be used to recharge themselves. Um, so, you know, really the, one of the biggest just, you know, administrative burdens of running any kind of healthcare practice, especially mental health care is, is, you know, doing the documentation needed to get reimbursed by insurance, you know, and so, so we have a suite of tools that can, that can record the session and, and then, um, you know, help them more expediently, you know, generate the kind of documentation that that's needed from, from what's happening there. Um, and the second suite of tools that we have is all around using data to help inform treatment decisions. So, you know, there's a whole discipline around evidence-based care uh, in the mental health space. And, and there's just a ton of research that shows that when you're collecting data from your clients, you know, during treatment and using that data to help treatment decisions that you know, outcomes are, are better and, and folks, you know, um, see improvement in their symptoms faster. Um, but again, as, as, as you just said, Jordan, there's, there's been a really a, a lack of focus on tools for clinicians to help do that, you know? And so, so we have, um, again, an, another, you know, line of, line of products and features around making sure that the right kind of assessments can be administered to, to clients during treatment. And then that data then, you know, flows into our system and, and you know, acts as an assistant to the, to the clinician to help them, you know, use that when they're making, you know, choosing interventions within treatment or, or, you know, how to continue care. Just Roger, um, with, with your product, like what type of what type of practice do you do you target? Are your customers uh, like sole practitioner clinicians or are they up through uh, much larger groups? Or I'm, I'm curious who, who you target with that platform. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a great question. And and I'm very happy to say it's, it's kind of all of them. Um, so so we, we definitely have an offering that you know, a solo practitioner can can show up at Blueprint and and sign up and get using the product right away and, and you know, can kind of run their own, you know, kind of run their own journey that way. Um, we do have a, a very you know strong cohort of, of customers that are in that kind of like mid-sized group practice, um, you know, kind of range. Um, and then also we have um, some large organizations that either have, you know, kind of a regional network of, of providers um, or that maybe um, have you know contract clinicians under their umbrella. You know maybe they're a, they're a, um, a company that is doing their own kind of you know tech enabled um, platform in the space, and they and they have clinicians that that are part of that platform that they're using Blueprint to integrate with and, and augment what they're doing. So so we really have a, a really it's a really nice kind of portfolio of um, you know all the way from single clinicians to up to you know groups that have like a thousand clinicians. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, the broad spectrum of value. Um, and and I think it's, you know, it's one thing to put together solutions for larger organizations. So if you talk about an organization that has a thousand clinicians in it, they have technology resources and they have technology leaders yeah. and they can make an assessment and make decisions about and, and do do a proper uh a selection process on on what to, mm -hmm. uh, as far as what their needs and what what type of solutions and they don't and, and often it may not be a single solution and may multiple and but what I think is really interesting and and I see this pattern repeated and and some of this I've seen it repeated in this knowing uh, and having worked with uh, clients in this space before um, at various sizes that it's it's very challenging because especially the smaller you get they're People focused on this, whether mm -hmm. they're they're in mental health or they're um, uh, more traditional medical practitioners or, or anything adjacent, they're 
they've spent often invested a tremendous amount of time in learning that industry and they tend mm -hmm. to be often uh, let's just fair to say less knowledgeable at, about technology mm -hmm. they're, they're not naturally technologists right. like some of us are that say come through engineering backgrounds so i think it's really interesting to because that that to me is a unique it's a unique business problem where they're actually the group that most need solutions mm -hmm. technology solutions uh because especially the smaller practices smaller organizations but they're they're actually the least equipped to properly select the right solutions uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i i feel like maybe you have you have you been like listening in on some of our recent like leadership team conversations because because <laughs> yeah that 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 is that that is 100 percent the case is that you know when we're working with a larger or org typically you know um they've got a group that knows how to integrate with apis you know blueprint has an api um, we've got a few different mm -hmm. you know, integration yep. patterns we can employ and and those yep. you know sort of ironically obviously with any large organization there's always you know integration is always a um you know a, a unique journey uh, to, yep. to, to, get, to get to be successful but um but a lot of times those you know those are um a little bit easier to work with because everybody on both sides kind of knows you know knows the patterns and, and knows the role you know um but it, it's those it's those practices that you know, they started out smaller. Um, they've been able to grow their business, which is great. Um, you know, now they're so mm -hmm. focused on on growing their clinician business and 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 keeping their clinicians happy and and you know just being a good mm -hmm. business owner that like you know leaning into learning about healthcare integration technology is is like so far down on their list that that you know we really need to. Um, um, kind of bring our A game to, to help them through that and, and and try to make, you know, Blueprint as as accessible and, and helpful as possible because they've got so many other things that they're trying to deal with. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And, and the reason, I, I, you know, I wasn't in those meetings. I, I, did, I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't tracking those, but it's this this problem is just I've seen this applied so many times in the in the in the in the greater business space. It's like you know, especially working a lot with like mid market um, and enterprise, like a very a broad spectrum is we keep this is the problem I keep seeing in in the space. And we talk a lot about it. Soligo because we are. Uh, an integration and automation company, and we feel like okay, we're the found a foundational component for digital transformation, and yet that some of the organizations that need it most are the less less equipped to take advantage of it, and so it's yeah. this really interesting dichotomy where we have uh, often working with groups that are they have team they have a team they're capable they were coming in I think it was as like working with a crew of experienced professional contractors, and that you you've mm -hmm. got these other ones where. It, it's almost like you're, you know, it's it's someone trying to do it themselves, and yet they've never, right. uh, they've they've never uh, framed anything before, and they're trying to build a, a you know, <laughs> a, a three story, uh, a three story deck, right, <laughs> mm -hmm. over a cliff because if it fails, it can often mean their business. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really in interesting, and, and and I think this this is a this is the what you what you're you guys are solving in healthcare actually really represents a greater problem mm -hmm. in in business right now is like how, how to leverage these tools, mm -hmm. how to take more advantage of, of modern modern products, AI being one of them, but how can mm -hmm. you do that when you don't really have have the skill set to to vet those and make those decisions on your own? Yeah, how does it get sure. packaged together? Right. Yeah. Is there anything that, I mean, and is there any like, I don't know, nuggets you've learned in that process that that's helpful in, for those for those kind of you know, mid-market kind of customers in that situation? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I, I, I really, the way I frame it up often is thinking about it in, in terms of smaller organizations are always focused on, they really need business solutions. And so those of us that are providers of solutions, um, you often you, you're often thinking about it in terms of technology and you kind of make these assumptions and you can almost get a, a little bit of uh, tunnel vision and, and make and because when you work with the larger ones they're they're more capable so you're dealing with other technologists there so they're you're talking at an eight like you said an API to API platform level which th they can they can bridge that gap from that technical conversation to solving the business problem and getting the business solution. And they're really, they're really architecting the business solution themselves versus as you get smaller and smaller, it needs to be a more and more packaged, true business solution. Mm -hmm. And it's in the, and it's at that abstraction. You mentioned that, that concept of abstraction and that's exactly it. It, it has to be much, much more abstracted. And th even though it could be the same thing, you could actually be selling the same exact product, but it's going to be used differently. And so you're depending on your audience there and their sophistication, the level of it. And, and I, I think keeping that in mind has always been really helpful in, in just like even in just trying to understand requirements or how right. to make like really and often more importantly, how to make them successful with the product mm -hmm. yeah, um, for sure. really regardless of what it is. I think you, you touched on that a lot, Mark, but I'm kind of curious, Roger, I'll, I'll, kind of reframe we're talking a lot about framing today but i'll reframe your question mark or excuse me your question roger and and um turn it back around to you but like how do you personally like what is your strategy for building technology for the i guess technologically challenged technologically inexperienced um for those like smaller practices what like what's going through your head when you're saying okay we have a new uh, release we have a new product you know specific rollout um how are you building technology for those that aren't as technologically inclined yeah, sure. Well, I mean, in my experience, you know, nothing beats um, trying to have as clear of a persona in mind as, as to who you're building for and trying to, you know, as part of developing that persona, just thinking about the like their priorities um, and just in their in their daily job, like where are they, you know, where do they, you know, going to spend the most of their time all the way down to things that they are not interested in at all, you know, and just as a just as, you know, as kind of a, a specific example from the lens of a, a you know software engineer who's you know now in management like um it's it's easy and, and tempting you know if if there's some kind of um you know bit of the workflow that's not working and you know for someone who understands the product really well to say oh well you know like yeah we can't we can't automatically detect that bit of data for for some technical reason you know, the workaround is to have them go in and flip this other switch and type this other thing in, and then now everything will work fine, you know? And as, a, and as an engineer, like, that's a really satisfying sort of answer because like, oh, we've now, we've solved the problem and we've made it work and, and we don't, you know, we don't have to maybe incur these other side effects that we didn't want to, we didn't want to, you know, deal with. Um, but you have to remember that in the shoes of the, of the person who's using your product, like they bought it to save them time. They bought it to do something for them. And so if you tell them, well, actually to accomplish this thing you want, here's three other steps you got to do. Like that's not, it's not a very satisfying, it's not a very satisfying <laughs> answer from the, from the customer's perspective, you know? Um, 
And so, and so that's just something, you know, and again, we're, we live in a world of scarce resources and there's lots of demands on my team. And so, you know, we're always asked to, to figure something else out, which, you know, engineers are problem solvers and we love to do that. But, but I even need to, you know, to kind of remind myself of that mindset when those things kind of pop up, it's like, Hey, look, like, you know, they didn't buy this product to do extra work so that it will work. They bought this product to save time and to get some result and, you know, how to, how to manipulate blueprint so that it works is like way down on their low priority list, you know? So, so if you, if you can kind of just hold that in your head while you're, while you're designing solutions and, and fixing bugs and all the other stuff that comes with delivering a product, like, you know, I, I just think that's a really valuable lesson to, to keep top of mind. It's cool to hear a customer first perspective from a vice president of engineering. And I don't think that perspective, I, I know it's in your head all the time, mm -hmm. but it's not often vocalized. And so it, it's very, uh, it's just really cool to, to hear that, that you're focused on, you know, the actual, like the person literally using the software. And I know that's literally what you get paid to do, but it's, you just don't hear it that often. But anyway, Mark, it looked like you were cooking up a question. Sorry to, if you were. I mean, I'm always cooking, cooking <laughs> up a question. I, <laughs> um, uh, no, no, go, go, go ahead, Jordan. I, I don't want I, I'll, I've got one I'll say for a little bit later. I don't want to derail the conversation right now. So. Sure. Sure. So, um, uh, you know, doing a little deep dive on blueprint, something that I thought was pretty interesting was the fact that you guys, um, list integrations. Um, obviously Sligo, we're an iPass integration focused company. Um, we live and breathe integrations. We have API connections to what, 250 different apps, um, with data flowing between them for thousands of companies every single day. Um, it seems like the majority of integrations at blueprint have to do with EHR for those listening. That's in electronic health records, which of course I knew before this conversation, but I just wanted to make it clear to our <laughs> listeners. Um, how do you guys handle integrations? What, like, what do you, what is a, a mental health, um, man it, I guess, uh, a mental health, um, company like blueprint, like what do they care about integrations? How do integrations get built? Um, I mean, I'm very aware of how they work in e-commerce. I know Mark has like a thousand times my knowledge in that space, but in your brand of work, what, like how do integrations happen? Like just kind of give us a, a breakdown on, on the integrations of at blueprint. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, you know, healthcare integrations is, is, a, is a topic that, you know, many people way smarter than me could spend years talking about. So, you know, we, we don't need to, uh, I won't even try to go, go real deep on that. But, you know, at, at the highest level, EHR systems or EMR systems, you know, they, they exist to hold kind of like the clinical record of the patient, you know, and, and really, you know, oftentimes the, the main kind of driver of that is so that you have the right kind of data around, um, you know, a person's conditions and, and the procedures that were taken and their diagnosis so that you can then properly, you know, um, submit claims to insurance and payers and, and get reimbursed. And so, so, you know, EHRs tend to have this kind of mix of, of some diagnostic information as well as then the, you know, the information needed, um, you know, for, um, you know, for getting paid by, by a payer. Um, and so, you know, in Blueprint's world, you know, we, we um, view ourselves as a complement to that system. You know, we're, we're not a replacement for that system. 
Um, and there's lots of, you know, kind of regulatory and, and other, you know, overhead that comes with being like, the, you know, the system record for, for that information. Um, but, you know, to, to do Blueprint's job, you know, we need to have information about, about the client, you know, it, typically in the EHR terms, they're, it, it's called a patient, you know, in mental health typically use the term client. Um, so we need to have, you know, the information about who this person is and their age and their gender and, and you know, how to contact them and things like that. Um, and then what Blueprint does really well is, is we have this great engine for, you know, delivering the, the mental health care experience. So, so what needs to happen um, in between treatment, what kinds of, um, you know, homework or, or check-ins or things um, clients should be doing between their visits with their, their provider, you know, when the provider is, is wanting to measure their symptoms and their, and their symptom response, like what kind of instruments, you know, assessments are used to measure that. Um, and then once all that data flows in, then now we have this real picture of, of the client's mental health journey and, and you know, what um, things have been done in treatment and then how, how those things then affect, you know, their outcomes. So, so we kind of sit, you know, next to the EHR, but that means we need to get patient information in, you know, to the EHR. Um, and then usually once we've done our thing and we have this kind of record of, of um, what the client has done and you know, in concert with the clinician and the blueprint platform, some of that needs to flow back into the EHR for, for documentation purposes. So, um, you know, so if someone, uh, you know, completes a, an assessment to measure their depression symptoms, obviously we need to know who that person is. So the patients flow in to blueprint. Once they've done that, you know, that will then, the, the result of that assessment will then flow back into the EHR. And then that may be used, you know, downstream and in, in later, um, processes for, you know, billing or, 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 um, et cetera. Um, so, so really it's, you know, at, at the highest level, it's getting patient information in it's sending, you know, um, assessment data back in there's, you know, a million other different nuances there where, um, ideally someone is being reminded to, to take these assessments, um, near, near their appointment, you know, so that way you can walk into your appointment and see your provider and their provider has a fresh, set of data to look at and review with you and, 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 you know, talk about, um, so, you know, being able to have visibility in the appointment schedule so we can make sure the, the client has been completing, you know, the, the, the in instruments, you know, ahead of time, you know, th that's another piece of it. Um, <clears throat> you know, so really that's the, in all cases, that's the flow of the data from a technical perspective, you know, there's, <laughs> there's as many ways to do it as, as you can think of. Um, you know, I, I like to tell my team that, you know, CSVs and SFTP still rule the world, despite, you know, everybody's best efforts to, to make things that are more elegant, you know, so, so, you know, um, you know, securely delivering flat files back and forth is, is still um, a, a prime, prime example. Um, you know, we do have a, a, a more modern API and, and we love to work with, with partners that can, um, can, you know, call our APIs and we have APIs for them to call. So that's kind of our preferred, you know, pattern. Um, Luckily, there, there is a lot of innovation in the mental health care space today. So there are a lot of um, tech company and kind of tech forward companies that, that are speaking APIs. Um, and there, you know, there's just a ton of, of um, you know, kind of historical healthcare standards, FHIR and HL7 and, and um, all that that are still in play. So, you know, so we again, to the, to the point of like, how do we make this a business solution that's accessible? Like we try to speak as many languages as we can, you know, again, we can't. We can't do everything perfectly um, all the time, but we, we try to be as um, as accommodating as possible and and you know meet the customer where they are with whatever technology they have. So, thank you. Appreciate that, man. Uh, 
Roger, one thing I kind of related to this, you, know, you talk about the data that you're moving back and forth, and obviously this is there, there's this is highly sensitive information, and uh, moving out so so security and compliance are the utmost concerns, and there was something early in in the uh, our discussion here where you mentioned you know, one of the services you provide is generating notes. So recording the sessions and generating notes. And, and instantly kind of my, my mind's, you know, like, okay, how are you doing this? Oh, I bet you've got a, uh, you know, using a, a, a large language model and you're likely, and, and so I'm curious about your your experience with AI. And if you're, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're doing it with some other way, uh, that, that's, that'd be very interesting. But assuming you're, you're, you're doing something to, tr- you know, automated AI models to translate this data. I'm curious how you're doing that and and addressing some of the the security concern, the the compliance, security and compliance Mm -hmm. concerns that are really like kind of at the forefront Mm -hmm. of some of these new technologies and and how you weigh out, okay, what new technologies you bring Mm -hmm. in versus, you know, what what models you build in house versus what you can take outside and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. hundred percent. That's a great question. And obviously, you know, security is is 100% top of mind for us. It, it's it's a critical aspect for our customers. You know, we, we would not be in business if if we didn't have um, you know rock solid security and compliance. And and so that's you know again that's probably one of the one of the top aspects of my role or my job and and in this role is is to make sure that that we're that we're solid there. So yeah, we we follow all the HIPAA rec- recommend or regulations. Um, you know, we are SOC 2, type 2 compliant just from a, you know, from a yep. overall, um, you know, kind of compliance perspective. And really our approach is, is you know, we, we run in a cloud infrastructure platform, you know, like most modern tech companies do. Um, you know, we, we take great care to make sure that only the right, you know, folks on staff for their job function have access to the right pieces of that infrastructure. Um, but really when it comes to the sensitive data, you know, our, our approach is to, never retain anything longer than we need to. So when it comes to, you know, a, um, a session recording and a transcript, like, you know, we, we take those, we um, move those on to the next stage in our pipeline. And then when, when that stage is completed, we, we delete, you know, the, the recording, the transcript. So mm-hmm. we, ne- we never keep anything longer than we have to. Um, and then we make sure that all of the PHI um, stays within our, um, HIPAA compliant infrastructure. So, so certainly, again, like most modern software companies, we have a number of third-party services that we use for various things that are outside our infrastructure. But we make sure that everything that um, has, you know, uh, customers' health information stays within our compliant infrastructure. And if we do need to, um, you know, use a third-party service for something that we've already we've redacted or we've you know truncated mm-hmm. or whatever we've done to make sure that we're not sending any. Uh, sense of information in that, you know. So, again, it, you know, we, it, it's definitely a, it's, it's an exciting new frontier. It's a little bit scary. It's, it's, it's you know, definitely a um, a challenge. And and you know, our, our customers are, are really anxious for some of these solutions, but they're also very concerned about the privacy. And and you know, so we're again just trying to be very thoughtful, intentional, and um, and you know, you know, we are we are learning with the rest of the industry, like you know, kind of what are the um, you know, what are the critical pieces here? Um, but so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So with that in mind, um, obviously security is incredibly important, but what is next for the blueprint platform technologically? Will it be alternate types of 
uh, inclusion of AI technology? Are there new product releases coming? What can you what can you tell the listeners about what's next for Blueprint as a platform technologically? Yeah, so I, I think I, I think all those things. Not to not to cop out and sidestep, but um, <laughs> yeah. you know we, we we you know we know there's we know there's tremendous opportunities to use AI in terms of um, you know saving clinicians time, in terms of augmenting their decision making you know capabilities. You know AI is is never going to replace the you know the human touch of a of a therapist that that understands you and, and knows your history and your story. Um, and so, you know, that, that's definitely not, you know, that's not the goal, but, but certainly there's, you know, there, there's a lot of things that happen in running any kind of business that, that AI can be a, you know, a great benefit for. So we know there's a long road ahead in, in, in helping, um, folks, you know, save time. Um, we also know there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, maybe even more, um, kind of more traditional, you know, um, data science techniques. Um, and just, you know, you know, we're building a very impressive data set of, of um, you know, uh, mental health um, outcomes in, you know, within our, in our platform. And, and, you know, we believe that data is going to be really powerful to um, to be able to help, you know, provide insight on, on what kinds of, of approaches work and, and what kinds of, um, you know, ways do you get to a better outcome, you know, and, and so building more of that knowledge into the product as our data set, you know, uh, continues to, to mature and us, you know, we build more, you know, products and tools, you know, kind of on top of that data. Um, and, and then, you know, again, you can't, you can't undersell just making a great experience that, that both clinicians and, and clients will love, you know, um, you know, we have uh, mobile apps, um, and the ability to, to send, um, you know, to engage clients via text, via email, via our mobile app. And, um, and you know, there's a, a very common kind of ask from clients is, is hey, look, I, you know, um, I've been seeing this person and it didn't work. And so I saw another person that didn't work. And then I saw another person that finally worked. And, and so, you know, people um, who are seeking treatment, like they, they want to know like how they're doing, they, they want to get better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they want to, they want to find the right person that that's going to help them do that, you know? And so being able to, to, um, you know, guide them along the path of like, Hey, this, this person might be the right fit for you. And then also, you know, while they're in treatment, being able to, um, you know, give them the kind of reinforcement that, that actually helps their, you know, their in treatment um, get better is, is a very powerful, you know, Thing to be able to do. Thank you. Appreciate that, man. So uh, a, a key thing there jumped out, Roger, and it almost kind of like connecting some of the dots here. One of the, like you're actually able to, Blueprint's able to provide a broader value to the mental health community just from a standpoint of facilitating better matchmaking between uh, clients and clinicians that have better outcomes which ultimately, if you're successful, that that alleviates some of the the shortage of clinicians that are out there. If you get more people working with the right person, getting to a better outcome, that that creates a more that creates a more efficient system, essentially, and helps helps alleviate some of the the, the pent up demand in that, that we're that we're seeing in that space, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly right. There, there's such a there's such a you know, the supply or the, I'm sorry, the demand is outstripped the supply. And, and so something needs to happen in the marketplace to, to rationalize that. And, and obviously there could be, you know, there could be a whole lot more supply, but, but, you know, making, 
making the delivery of care more efficient, you know, is, 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 a, is a huge opportunity. That's really cool. Do you feel that there might be like, obviously you guys are a company with your own product, but that capability to match the right person with the right clinician, um, do you, or does blueprint plan on expanding that capability or like, I don't know if licensing or white labeling that capability to other brands in the healthcare space? Is that something that's on the table? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to speak too much about kind of something that doesn't Sorry. exist yet <laughs> um, in terms in terms of our in terms of our product plans. But you know, but we definitely, I mean, we, we definitely know there there's a real need there. We definitely know that um, it, you know that would be a, a, a valuable offering to, to have. You know, and so um, I, I think there's there's a lot of possibilities that that emerge. You know, just from you know um, from having something that that can really um, provably get people healthier, faster, you know, um, but, uh, you know, job one right now is we're just focused on, on building a great product that, that, you know, clinicians want to use and that clients want to use and, and making sure that, you know, that we can, um, you know, help people deliver great care. That's awesome. Thank you for diplomatically answering that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just let's just ask you to, to dish out your entire go-to-market strategy. <laughs> I'm thinking ahead. I'm thinking ahead. Well, um, we're getting relatively close to the end of uh, our recording session, and I want to make sure that um, both Mark has uh, enough time to ask any remaining questions. I have just a few that I want to wrap up with. Um, let me just ask you this, because this is something that we sometimes ask our guests, and it's not particularly related to anything we've talked about. But um, you mentioned when you kind of talked about your journey to becoming a vice president of, uh, uh, of engineering, Rogers that you, you know, you'd been in, um, you know, a coding or an engineering capacity, but before that, maybe, you know, 10, 15 year old Roger, what really got you interested in, in software and engineering? Was there any, any particular event or, or, um, product that came out that you just loved and, and kind of kickstarted that for you? Yeah. Yeah. Th that, that's a great question. So I actually grew up on a, on a dairy farm. So 15 year old Roger was, was milking cows and, and baling hay in the summers and, and getting up pretty early. And, and, uh, um, and I think I knew, you know, f about that age that probably a, a career in farming wasn't, um, wasn't the most uh, likely path for me. And, and, and my parents were, were hundred percent very supportive and, and, um, and you know, encouraged me to, you know, pursue whatever career felt right. And, um, they actually sent me to computer camp when I was probably in like fifth grade. And I think we ended up, you know, spending a lot of time formatting floppy disks at the time and, and, uh, um, you know, doing some very basic programming in the, in the basic programming language. And, um, so I, so I had, a, you know, some exposure to computers kind of along the way there. Um, but really, you know, I was, I had the good fortune just in terms of the, the timeline of the earth to, to be joining college about the time that the World Wide web was, you know, coming of age. And, and, and so, you know, just seeing that, Thing kind of go from not existing to all of a sudden everywhere in the span of a couple of years while I had a chance to to really like shape my career and, and try things out and, and just be, you know, so a little bit older than 15. But, um, you know, but but that, that was really a formative moment because when I when I first entered college, you know, I didn't really have a I, you know, I didn't I wasn't like, oh, VP of engineering. And that's that's what I got to be like. I didn't you know, I didn't really know um, I, I was 
roughly interested in studying business. Um, but once I got into college and, and as the web emerged, like then it really started to kind of like click together for me that, oh, I, I, I kind of like computers and and uh, and this seems like a really kind of world changing opportunity. And, and turns out, you know, that it was so. That's awesome. It's, it's cool to hear how just like a, a small event like a computer camp, you know, when you're young can really lead to something like that. I, I recently, this, I'll do a quick story just because I, I found this pretty interesting, but I used to babysit for a kid when I was probably 15 or 16. And I remember one day he showed me a computer game that he had made. It was not a very good computer game, but he had made it. He was like seven or eight years old. And, you know, with the help of his dad. And um, I, I babysat him and I haven't thought about that family for maybe 15 years. <laughs> and just recently I found out that the dad who helped him make that computer game is the founder of Siri, who sold Siri to Apple, the founder of change.org, um, who is one of the biggest change petition organizations in the world. Um, and now he is what the VP of AI experience at Airbnb and recently sold a company to Airbnb. And I think his son is doing something in the engineering field. I would assume so. And I, you know, it could have been just from him making that video game with his son, whether it's you going to computer camp, but there's just those like little events that can, be so incredibly formative. And it's always interesting to hear um, people, Mark and I have heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, our first, the first computer I got was a Commodore 64 or, you know, for some reason that always comes up. I guess a lot of people <laughs> have Commodore 64s, but you know, whatever, what, it doesn't really matter what it was, but it's just cool that something so small can become so transformative in life. Um, with that in mind, uh, we are closing in, like I said, and I apologize for that little detour. But um, before I ask my kind of wrap up, finalized questions, Mark, I'm curious if you had any anything on your plate that you wanted to ask Roger before we. Uh... Well, uh, yeah, well, maybe one thing. So, Roger, I saw that you were uh, Indiana Business Journal Tech Executive of the, of the Year. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Yes, thank you. Awesome! Mm -hmm. Congratulations. That's that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about a couple of things. And, and one is the sort of the, the somewhat, I almost think of it as a little bit of the uniqueness of being a, a tech leader in Indiana. And, and people can be very co-centric in a certain way around tech mm -hmm. or these tech. We have these tech hubs in, in, in the country. And whether you're in the Bay Area or Seattle or Austin or, or, or Boston, thinking like, okay, well, outside of that, the, mm -hmm. the innovation isn't happening maybe. And, and that's really... And, you know that, that's wrong very much of the time and we i, I know we, at saligo we opened an office in indiana and, and just ha have have a great group of employees there and and see this and, and i'm just curious like a little bit on your perspective of of indiana either as a, as a tech hub or what that's like and what that experience is mm -hmm. probably building an engineering team there mm -hmm. in that area and how the like yeah what, what your take on that is yeah, sure. Well, you know, so I, I was born and raised in, in wow. northern Indiana. You know, I started I went to um, Indiana University. I started my career in Chicago and, and spent some time there, but then, you know, moved to Indy going on 20 years ago. And, and so Indy is my, you know, adopted home and, and it's my community. And, and, you know, the the you know, the award you mentioned was was for sure a career highlight for me to be recognized by this community that I've, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, in and, and poured love into. And so, so that was, you know, for sure, just something really awesome and very proud of that. Um, and so, you know, I think like, you know, one thing that's really great about being a, um, you know, in a small community like this is that it is a very supportive and a very self-reinforcing, you know, community. Um, so, 
you know, I, I think we're all self-aware here in Indianapolis that, you know, we're not the, you know, we're not the biggest pond and, and, you know, there's not as much capital flows here, but, but we have a bunch of talented folks and, you know, we all, um, you know, this is our home and, and we want to live here and work here and make it a great place to live and work. And, and so, you know, everyone is very much um, a cheerleader for each other and very much as a um, advocate for other, you know, companies in the, you know, in the area. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a place that really celebrates successes and wins. So, you know, in the past 10 years or so, we've had a couple of, you know, really major exits. Um, you know, Exact Target was a great company here that was acquired by Salesforce for a couple billion. And, and Angie's List was uh, a great company that um, joined IAC, you know, for, for, um, and, you know, there, there's a, you know, a longer list of, of smaller ones, you know, um, so, so the, the successes that have happened here, like everyone really celebrates, you know, um, and um, so I think, I think that's like, you know, I think that's my, my favorite part of it is, is, you know, um, just being in a small group where everybody kind of knows everyone, um, but just really supportive of one another. Uh, that's, that's really cool that the supportive community nature of it. That's, that's awesome. That's like, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge thing right there. Roger, Mark just uh, sent me a Slack that said he's moving to Indiana so he can win the award next year. Well, then, <laughs> well, we would love to have you, and I'll be I'll be happy to nominate you. Um, well, no, and it is it's funny. We have one of our uh, I guess companies that's either a partner or closely associated with us is is called TechPoint, and they're in mm -hmm. Indiana. Yep. And just the camaraderie that I see between them and other Indiana-based tech companies is it's exactly what you said. It's it's mm -hmm. it's very supportive it's very inclusive and uh, it's really important for places that don't have the um kind of swinging power of silicon valley or boston mm -hmm. or something like that um so i do want to wrap up with one question just to make sure the listeners can get to know you a little bit more outside of the technology world and this is the question that i always ask but um outside of work roger what are your and i know you told me earlier one of your passions hobbies or interests is cooking Thanksgiving dinner. But besides that, what are your passions, hobbies, and interests outside of work? Yeah, for sure. No, I do love to cook. Um, and I think kind of uh, side, you know, adjacent to that is, is love to travel. Um, so just recently returned from a, from a trip to Italy, which was kind of my wife and I's first major trip since before the pandemic. Um, but had been, you know, had the good fortune to, to kind of go all, all over the world and, you know, climb Kilimanjaro and drive around Iceland and, and places like that. So, so I think, you know, seeing the world is, is, you know, for sure my, my top hobby. Um, but then, yeah, a little closer to home. I love to cook. I love to eat. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I've got, uh, I've got two daughters, one who is at Indiana university and, and another who is a, a junior in high school right now. Um, so, you know, certainly uh, movie nights with the family and, and, you know, seeing, seeing them grow up and, and thrive is, is, uh, is also a full-time job. Um, so. Awesome. Well, whether you're dealing with daughters or kids in general or cooking, it sounds like you have a full plate. <laughs> All right. On that fantastic joke, um, I just want to wrap up this technology leadership podcast. Thank you to those uh, listening. Roger, really appreciate you being here representing Blueprint. Mark, uh, as always, you've been a fantastic co-host and uh, stick around, everybody. We'll be back in about a week or two with our next episode. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Bye. Roger. <laughs>